Well, good afternoon. It's great to see all of you and uh, those of you I can't see who are upstairs, good afternoon to you as well. I'm glad you're here. Uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know all that has gone on for us this day and you know the things that can easily distract us, but we pray, please would you now work within us so that we might hear your word, understand it and believe it, and that our lives might be shaped by it to the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, why do we repeat ourselves? When you speak to your spouse or to your children, more often your children, if you're anything like me, and you say what you've said before, why do you do that? When you repeat a point that's made in a sermon or a Bible study group, why do you do that? Well, there's two main reasons, aren't there? because it's important and because you want people to remember it. In the case of your children, it might also be that there's no evidence they were listening to you the first time, but be that as it may. What about when God repeats himself? What about when the same injunction or the same message is repeated throughout the Bible? The command to love one another occurs multiple times in the New Testament. It comes as a, a new commandment, a reflection of the new age that's broken in with Jesus' resurrection, but it's actually an old commandment which we have had from the beginning. Certainly no trivial thing. It's not a mere appendage to Christian faith and life. It's not an option for some, but not for others. It's so critically important and Jesus and his apostles want us to remember it and that's why it is repeated it's easy for us to forget it forget it's easy for other things to distract us and that's why it's repeated what about Paul's exhortation to the Philippians to rejoice rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice and he made it clear to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. We should notice when things are repeated in scripture and perhaps especially when the warnings are repeated in scripture. Well over the past few years we've been working our way through Matthew's gospel in chapel on Fridays and uh, we've done it at such a glacial pace that uh, we may not have noticed something that it's been repeated three times before we arrive at tonight's passage. At the very beginning of Matthew 18, the disciples asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus responds by countering the quest for greatness with the call to humble yourself like this child. A chapter later, Peter points out to Jesus that they, the first disciples, had left everything to follow him and then asked, what then will we have? And after speaking about the judgment of the 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus reminds him, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And at the end of the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, Jesus said again, so the last will be first and the first will be last. A little later, the mother of Zebedee comes along and brings her infamous request, say that these two sons of mine will sit, one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. 
Let my boys have the places of honour, the positions of authority, and, and let everybody know that now. And this time Jesus' answer is more fulsome. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And tonight, uh, as we come to the first part of Matthew 23, Jesus ends this paragraph with, the greatest among you will be your servant, whoever exalts themselves will be humbled, and whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. Friends, the call to be humble, to serve, to be content with being last rather than striving to be first, this clearly matters to Jesus. He keeps saying it. It's something important and it's something he wants his hearers and those of us who read this record of his words to remember. And that's why he keeps repeating it. And it's something that is easy for us to forget. It's something that's easy for us to find overturned in our lives. And that's why he keeps repeating it. The example of Jesus leads to service, not the pursuit of greatness. It's demonstrated in humility, not self-importance and pretension. And I take it that there's another reason why Jesus keeps coming back to this theme, and that is that it's a very real danger. It's not just hypothetical. And the simple fact that the Christian churches over the centuries and in our own time have departed from Jesus so markedly at this point shows the real danger it is. And friends, can I say to you that as you begin a year of theological education in this college, it is a danger that you will face. The desire to be noticed, to be respected, perhaps a bit of academic competition or ecclesiastical ambition. And so we need to look very closely at what Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples that day. So would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 23 and let me read you the first 12 verses. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit upon Moses' seat. Therefore all that they say to you, do and keep, but do not do what they do. For they speak, but they do not practice. They bind heavy burdens and hard to bear, and they put them on the shoulders of men, but they're not willing to lift a finger to them themselves. All their works are done in order to be seen by men. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes large. They love the place of honour at meals and the seat of authority in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by men. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone your father on earth, for for you there is only one father, the heavenly father. And do not be called leader or director, because you have one leader, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
Now, each time Jesus has come to this theme or been brought back to this theme, there's been some little detail added. Humility like a child, not the pursuit of greatness. The overturning of status, rather than seeking a reward for what we see as the enormous sacrifices we've made. The sheer excess of grace that turns upside down our priorities and expectations not the domineering exercise of authority like the Gentiles, but service modelled on the one who gave his life as a ransom for many. And what is different and incredibly relevant for us gathered at the beginning of a new academic year in this theological college is how Jesus here in Matthew 23 targets the behaviour of the religious and theological leaders in Israel. Jesus speaks first about the scribes and Pharisees and then about his disciples. And he has three things to say to each group. On the one side, he speaks about empty preaching, about imposing onerous burdens and of a preoccupation with public recognition. These are the three poisons that are doing their deadly work in the scribes and Pharisees. And on the other side, he warns about elevating yourself as a teacher, attaching yourself to an alternative father, promoting yourself as a leader or director other than the Christ. And these are the warnings that lead him to say once again at the end of the passage, the greatest among you will be your servant and whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So let's look at each of those things very briefly. First, the poisonous example of the scribes and Pharisees. I wonder whether you were surprised by the very first thing that Jesus has to say about the scribes and Pharisees. Did you notice it? See, time and time again in this gospel, Jesus has warned about the teaching of the Pharisees. Back in Matthew 16, he'd said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And after an initial misunderstanding, the disciples realised he was talking about their teaching. The scribes and Pharisees have opposed Jesus throughout his ministry and they've shown themselves unable to understand the scriptures that point to Jesus. But here he says, they sit on Moses' seat, so for this reason, perhaps we might say for this reason alone, practice and keep what they say. They are the ones charged with reading and explaining the words of Moses and when they discharge that task, they are to be listened to. In this office and discharging this role, you are to do whatever they say. The problem will come when they depart from Moses, when they add their own traditions to Moses, when they walk away from Moses in their teaching and especially when they refuse to come to Jesus, even though Moses testifies about him. But otherwise, listen to them, Jesus is saying. For the critical thing that Jesus is talking about here is that you do not follow their example. Whatever they might sound like, no matter how fine their preaching, their lives show that there is something seriously flawed in their ministry. It's the way they live. 
Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will regularly warn the young Christian leaders he was training to watch their life and doctrine. How they live and what they teach. Too often in Christian history, and we know it ourselves, don't we, from the last few years, with people very close to us, good, sound teaching, excellent platform preaching has not been reflected in the life of the teacher and the result has been disastrous. can reach down through the years and right across the globe. And no matter how good it sounded, no matter how orthodox it could be proven to be, it was in the end empty preaching. That is what was going on with the scribes and Pharisees. They could preach up a storm, but it was their own lives which were being shipwrecked. It's a damning judgment from Jesus, isn't it? Would you ever want to hear those words directed towards you from him? They speak, but they do not practice. It's hollow and empty because it has had no impact first and foremost on them. And Jesus goes on to explain what he means. Their empty preaching showed itself in the way they treated others imposing expectations and regulations and burdens upon others that they were never willing to bear themselves. A level of purity they disregarded themselves. Financial generosity not matched by their own. A burden of volunteer work which allowed them to sit back in ease. Adherence to the minutia of the law. Well, they personally took a much more relaxed approach. It's all too familiar, isn't it? Be sacrificial in your giving while I drive around in a Porsche or Maserati. Be scrupulous in your personal behaviour, but it's okay for me to be massaged by prostitutes. You know the stories, and I suspect most of you will know the names that go with them. The poison that Jesus identified in the scribes and the Pharisees is alive and well today. And it's the reason why Jesus said... Listen when, when they tell you what Moses said, but do not follow their example. They preach, but they do not practice what they preach. It shows in the onerous burdens they place on others. And just as poisonous, just as much a demonstration of why their preaching is empty preaching, is their preoccupation with public recognition. Their piety is ostentatious. They want people to notice how godly they are. They're the loudest voices when we sing. Their hands are up higher than anybody else. They want people to notice how godly they are. They seem, it seems that the various groups of the Pharisees in Jesus' time were actually competing with each other to see how prominent the features of their religious dress could be. The phylacteries, those little boxes with pieces of the law in them strapped to their arms or their foreheads, they just kept getting broader. The fringes on their garments, showing how obedient they were to the law of Moses in Leviticus, just get longer and longer. Let everyone see that they mean it. Let everyone see that they're the real deal. Did you know that in the late 19th century and early 20th century, the broader or higher your clerical collar was, was evidence how Protestant you were. 
the big, really wide collars, they're really Protestant guys. They're not Catholic. As long as people notice, as long as people take notice and recognise that you are the real deal. And they loved, the Pharisees loved, the way faithful men and women gave them the seat of honour when they were invited to feasts and banquets. And the special seat, close to the scrolls, reserved for the holy man, the revered teacher in the synagogues. And everyone greeting them, perhaps best accompanied by a little bow. And best of all, being addressed as rabbi. In this context, not just sir, but master or perhaps even doctor. The recognised authority. And it was all the same, Jesus said. It was all done in order to be seen by men. Friends, how often have we created special religious dress, places of honour and exalted titles and given them to each other? Reverend, very reverend, right reverend, most reverend, canon, doctor, professor, but also things like senior pastor, global pastor, Rector, over time what was originally very ordinary dress, a cassock and a surplus, came to denote something special, distinctive, something that marks out the wearer as especially holy. Now there is a place for courtesy, obviously. There's a, there's a place for esteeming those who serve you. As Paul wrote to Timothy, there's a, a place for recognising an office to which a congregation or a group of congregations might justly call you. But by and large, the Christian churches have seriously stumbled in following the example of the scribes and Pharisees rather than the Christ. Many years ago now, I wrote a letter to a bishop which was addressed, Dear Brother, and his reply had stapled to it two pages on how to address the clergy. The poison that infected the scribes and Pharisees and which Jesus warns the crowds and disciples about is their empty preaching, which made no impact on their own lives. Their lack of mercy and compassion on others as they heaped upon them burdens, obligations and regulations that they themselves were not prepared to bear and their preoccupation with public recognition, always playing to the gallery and forgetting they stand full square in the gaze of the living God. And friends, can you seriously see how easily that poison could infect you? At each of those three levels, be warned, watch out, do not do what they do for they speak, but they do not practice. And again, would you like to hear those words addressed to you by Jesus? The poison of the scribes and Pharisees. Watch out for it. Now let's turn to the potential for pretension. At this point, it seems Jesus turned his attention more directly to his disciples. He'd been speaking to the crowds as well up to this point, but now it's just them. And the danger he warns them about is the pursuit of honour and recognition, especially seen in the titles we use. Three warnings. We might say they're about a teaching title, a relational title and a spiritual title. 
the search to be honoured because of our knowledge or because of our relationship of dependence or because of the authority to direct, guide and instruct. Of course, Jesus gave teachers to his church. They're one of the great gifts that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, pastor teachers. The elders and overseers that Paul talks about in the pastorals are to be apt to teach. There's nothing wrong with being a teacher or even with being thankful to God for the teachers that he's given us collectively and those who've had a more personal and direct impact on our lives. But setting yourself up as an authority, insisting on your status as a doctor, acting as if you are the sole repository of truth or the touchstone of Christian orthodoxy is as destructive as the behaviour of the Pharisees. None of us, you see, is infallible. All of us have things to learn. All of us have and will make mistakes. I have and I will. We will both misspeak and misbehave. And we cannot afford to set ourselves up in that way. I remember talking to a fellow student in a library far, far away and him telling me that ordinary Christians won't know, can't know what to believe unless we scholars tell them. It was a frightening moment that reminded me of the Pharisees. And the reason why this, is, this pretension is so dangerous is that when we think like that and act like that, we forget that we have one teacher and we are all brothers. Just as we recognise we have one high priest, Jesus, so we need to recognise that we have one teacher in a fundamental sense, Jesus. And our task is to bring people to be taught by him. It's his word rather than mine that counts. I know I keep saying this, but it needs to keep being said. You need to make the decision now whether you're going to point people to Jesus or point people to yourself. Either you present him as the truth or yourself as the guru. You can't do both. Make that decision now at the beginning and stick to it, won't you? John Calvin once put it this way. It should always be a concern on the part of ministers to preserve Christ's authority for himself. I guard his authority rather than seek to assert my own. Well, Jesus also warns about titles that create a false sense of dependence with the use of the word father. Now, of course, it's right and proper to have a fatherly concern for those young in the faith. Uh, that's what Paul had when it came to the Corinthians and the Thessalonians churches he planted during his ministry and he has a fatherly concern for them for them but it is so easy to become dependent upon a person rather than upon God so easy for that person we revere to become for us the real reference point for us we want to do things the way he does them or she does them we believe uncritically everything that comes out of their mouths what you're saying can't be right because so-and-so says differently. And the danger becomes tragically apparent if that person falls into serious sin and disgrace. 
I've sat beside people whose hero has fallen and it's devastated them. Only at that moment have they identified how much they invested in their relationship with this person rather than their relationship with God. For you, Jesus said, for you there's only one Father, the Heavenly Father. I personally have a list of people who've been critical in my growth as a Christian, people who've exercised mentoring roles at various points in my life. But I'm grateful that none of them sought to create a dependence upon them that deflected me from my first dependence upon my Heavenly Father. Each one pointed me away from themselves to him. But I know of cases where such relationships have been unhealthy and self-serving. The dependence has fed the self-esteem of the one depended upon. Don't call anyone your father on earth, Jesus said, for for you there's only one father, the heavenly father. And thirdly, Jesus warns against taking to yourself the role of director or leader. Many translations use the word teacher in verse 10, but Matthew, I believe, deliberately uses a different word which has more the sense of direction and leadership. If the first dangerous title elevates us as a repository of knowledge and the second creates a sense of unhealthy dependence in the Christian life, the third title binds us just as unhealthily to the will and insight of a human brother or sister. Once again, the problem is placing yourself in a position that properly belongs to Jesus. You have one leader or director, that's Jesus, who leads us to the Father and directs us by his word. Don't set yourself up as an alternative. Don't draw attention to yourself as the great leader great um, preoccupation of our age, isn't it? People wanting to be seen as leaders. Don't be like that. You have one leader, the Christ. It is not hard to see how the poison of the Pharisees can migrate into the Christian fellowship through our own dangerous pretensions, is it? One commentator put it as starkly as this, status or service... The church lives or dies on the minister's decision here. Are you here at college? Are you preparing for ministry, wherever it might be, for Jesus' sake or your own? In the end, will your confession that Jesus is Lord be reflected not just in your preaching and teaching, but how you live? Will you practice what you preach in this area? What the Pharisees did not know and we too easily forget is what Jesus reminds us here. The greatest among you will be your servant and whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Lord who loves us and laid down his life to save us gives us these words. But he also knows our weaknesses. He knows how mixed our motives can be. He knows how compromised our service can become by our own self-interest. He knew that when he saves us, saved us. 
He knew our hearts when he saved us. I cannot protect myself from the poison of the Pharisees or the pretensions that threaten a fellowship that remains centred on Christ and his glory. I need forgiveness for my failures in this area, but I also need his help if I'm not to be drawn into these things, perhaps without even realising it. And is that true for you too? I take it that because Jesus knows I need the warning, and you need the warning too, that he keeps repeating this teaching. I need to be reminded that the way he leads us, the way he exemplified, and the way he calls on us to follow is the way in which we pursue service, not greatness, and nurture humility, not self-importance and pretension. And I say again, this is a particular, particularly fitting word for us to hear this evening, not only as we start a new year learning and growing together, but as in a moment's time, we remember Jesus' service of us as we share in this symbolic meal together and remember what his service looked like. It's particularly important to be reminded that we live following that example. And so shall we pray. Heavenly Father, you know our weaknesses and you know how compromised our motives are. We long to be faithful to you and to your word to follow the example of your son, his uncompromised service of us, his willingness to let go of all glory and majesty in order that he might die so that we might be forgiven. And as this evening we remember again that sacrifice, we pray, will you impress upon us this lesson, repeated so often, so that we might never forget it. And we ask it of you in Jesus' name.